The Guardian. Reaction in Jericho this week to The Guardian's leaks of the Palestine Papers. I'm Matt Wells. You're listening to The Guardian's Focus podcast. This week saw the biggest release of confidential documents in the history of the Middle East conflict. Thousands of pages of secret material obtained by Al Jazeera TV and shared with The Guardian. Day one, we covered the story of the leak itself, which is significant, combined with the most important element of the documents that we were looking at that day. And that gave details of a Palestinian concession, a very significant one, in the context of an overall peace agreement with the Israelis. They would have ceded to the other side control of all but one of the settlements that have been built around East Jerusalem. That wasn't known before. That became public knowledge for the first time. On day two, another fascinating detail from the negotiations on one of the most sensitive issues in dispute between the two sides, and that's about the right of return claimed by Palestinian refugees to Israel. And the agreement there was that the Palestinians had accepted a symbolic token figure. 10,000 refugees and their families would be allowed to settle inside Israel. That's a very controversial issue on the Palestinian side. On day three, the main story we led with was about the involvement of MI6, the secret intelligence service, drawing up a strategy advising the Palestinian Authority how to deal with armed groups like Hamas and others. That caused quite a stir, because although it is known that the British government, like other Western governments and the US, supports the Palestinian Authority, this dimension of it was not previously known. Ian Black, Guardian's Middle East editor, reporting this week on the extraordinary revelations. In this podcast, we'll examine the fallout from the leaks and assess whether they have the power to change the course of the conflict. We'll hear from key Guardian commentators and from inside the region itself. At a pro-fata rally in Jericho, Saeb Erekat, one of the key Palestinian negotiators featured in the leaks, condemned Al Jazeera's involvement. This actually, this incitement, uh, campaign of incitement in Al Jazeera, is really asking people to shoot us, shoot our families. There is real danger on our physical presence. Our positions are very clear are very well identified, and this mere campaign, Al Jazeera saying that you are guilty until you get executed, and after you're executed, we'll give you unfair trial. That's called journalism 2011 Jazeera style. Our correspondent in Jerusalem is Harriet Sherwood. So this story has completely dominated the news here this week. Um, But what's been very interesting is that although the Israeli press has carried it extensively, there's been much more focus on the Palestinian side. In fact, Israeli politicians and officials have barely commented at all, whereas the Palestinians have been forced to comment. I went to a press conference in Ramallah the other day uh, where Yasser Abed Rabo was speaking on behalf of the PLO, And he was really um, venting his fury at Al Jazeera for leaking these documents, which obviously they shared with The Guardian. But I think the striking thing is that it's actually been very calm here, or in the West Bank and in Gaza, this week um, in the aftermath of the revelations. And I would have expected to see a bit more anger and a few more people out on the streets. But I think that's very indicative of both the scepticism or cynicism that people have about the peace process and perhaps a reflection of 
the fact that they are waiting to see what happens next. Clearly, it's been a very, very difficult week for the Palestinians. Our correspondent in Jerusalem, Harriet Sherwood. So that's some reaction to the leaks, but what do they really mean beyond embarrassment for the Palestinians? For Palestinians, the chief significance of these papers will be confirmation that what their leaders, their representatives were saying in public was very different from what they were saying in private. Publicly, they maintained a very hard line, seemed not to be giving an inch on some of the crucial issues. Now we know in private they were extremely flexible. For some Palestinians, that would be very hard to take, and it may erode the credibility anyway of the Palestinian Authority in the eyes of some parts of their public. The other side of that same coin, though, is that the significance of these papers inside Israel is that these documents blow apart what is now a truism among certainly those in government in Israel today. And that truism declares that there is no partner for peace on the Palestinian side. It's become a cliche to say there is no partner. These documents, whichever way you cut it, prove there really was a partner, a very serious, engaged one that was ready to be accommodating even in very difficult areas. And uh, I think that is already being recognised by very influential Israelis and is showing the impact of these papers. There is a, a legitimate complaint, I think, from the Palestinian Authority about misinterpretation in some quarters of some of these stories. What are described as concessions are concessions, but only if there's an overall agreement. Then, they insist, the principle applies that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. The criticism of that is that if the Palestinians say to the Israelis privately, okay, we will agree to let you annex these areas, then the Israelis pocket that as a concession and carry on without necessarily giving everything in return. But the fact is that none of these elements would work without an overall agreement. The Guardian's Ian Black and Jonathan Friedland. Azam Tamimi is the director of the Institute of Islamic Political Thought in London. The leaks confirm the image many of us had of the U.S. broker as a biased party, uh, speaking in the meetings with the same tone that the Israelis spoke. As far as the Israelis were concerned, they exploited the weakness of the Palestinian party Whenever they were presented with concessions, they wanted more concessions because they thought they could get more. Uh, They did not have a formidable counterpart to deal with, but rather a counterpart that was eager to appease and please. The coverage of the leaks has portrayed the Palestinian negotiators as supine, bending over backwards to make concessions. The Israelis are seen as unyielding, with the US their very partial supporters. Jonathan Friedland again. At one level, you could look at these papers and think that Israel is actually not serious about peace, that they're pretty intransigent. As uh, In many of the documents, uh, you see the Palestinians offering something and the Israelis rejecting them. Uh, nevertheless, I think uh, these are only a snapshot, inevitably. 1,600 papers is a lot, but there were probably tens of thousands of pages. And I think we have to assume that the Israelis then were at least giving a little and there was real give and take. Uh, and there was movement, otherwise these uh, conversations wouldn't have carried on. Uh, That said, that only says something about the Israelis then, not now. Uh, Sipi Livni, the chief negotiator, then foreign minister, is now in opposition. She's out of government. And the current government of Israel has formally abandoned and dropped the process that she was involved in and said they no longer stand by it. So what I think it tells you is actually there was 
some movement on the Israeli side, uh, although at first glance it looks pretty intransigent. But that was then and now is rather different. Jonathan Friedland. The leaked documents reveal how Palestinian negotiators gave up the right of return of all but a token number of refugees displaced by Israel between 1948 and 49. Dr. Khader is a fellow at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at Exeter University. The right of return is absolutely fundamental to what happened in 1948 and why we've got a conflict. We just have to think of five million UN-registered refugees, that is, refugees living in camps in different countries. One just has to think about them. Never mind about people who are not in camps. That's bad enough. People who are exiled and are not allowed to go and live in their original homeland. But if you think about the refugees... These people have got an appalling life. They have waited patiently for over 60 years in the hope that international law, justice, human decency, morality, whatever you want to call it, would have assisted them to find a return to their homeland. Now, to discover that the people speaking on their behalf actually done away with their right of returning to their homeland and so uh, dismissively, so cavalierly in return for uh, a little bit of territory on the West Bank is shattering. I mean, it's absolutely shocking. I mean, there's a lot of anger. Over time, as Israeli power has grown, as the fact that Western states, including Britain, has colluded and allowed Israel to become powerful, to break the law, to do actually whatever it likes, the Palestinians have retreated more and more into positions where something is better than nothing. A crumb from the high table is better than no food at all. That kind of thinking rather took over the leadership that emerged after the Oslo Agreement 1993. The problem is once you have that kind of idea, once you actually allow yourself to think in those terms, that something is better than nothing, however little it is, Once you start to think like that, it sets the stage for downgrading Palestinian legal demands, absolutely legal and justified demands. Uh, The stage is set. They had two choices, really, the Palestinian leadership. They could have either said at some stage, look, you Israelis are simply not playing the game. You are refusing to give anything at all. We cannot negotiate with people like you. Therefore, unless you change, we're not doing it anymore. We're not going to negotiate and to withdraw out of the process altogether. So that was one choice. The second choice would have been to say, well, maybe if we give a little bit more, they'll give us something. Uh, And that is the route that the negotiators took. The more of the fundamental rights of the Palestinians that no Palestinian had ever in decades had ever dreamt of giving up, they started to go into this dangerous area to think, if we give up even this, they, Israel, will give us something. And of course, the terrible truth is that with all these concessions, Israel has offered absolutely nothing in return. When I was in Ramallah early this week, talking to people, 
It's very evident that most people just want to get on with their lives. In fact, there was uh, an Israeli reporter quoted in one of the papers this week who had trawled the streets of Ramallah trying to find someone expressing anger and fury at the Palestinian negotiators or even Al Jazeera. And uh, people were just saying things like, I just want a permit to work in Israel. One of the things that people outside of this area don't always understand is that most Palestinians, as indeed most Israelis, just want to get on with their lives, want to live in peace, want to do their jobs, want to provide food and education for their children. Harriet Sherwood and before her, Khada Kami. So if the peace process really is at an end, what happens next? Is there any prospect of the region moving on and making life tangibly better for people? Azam Tamimi. The whole process of negotiating between Palestinians and Israelis is premised on extremely shaky grounds. And if I were to advise the Americans and the Europeans, as well as the Israelis, I would advise them to stop trying to revive a dead body and search for a new approach. And that new approach will have to begin with recognizing the fact that the Palestinians today are led by Hamas and no longer by Fatah or the PLO. The new approach that I would propose would be one that doesn't look for a statehood, but rather one that looks for a disengagement between the two sides. That should be through a long-term truce. A long-term truce signed between the Palestinians and the Israelis that would eventually lead to what I uh, call a two-state situation rather than a two-state solution. But it might pave the way for a solution sometime uh, later in history. Unless there is wider Palestinian support for a peace process with Israel, it's going to be hostage to the opposition of groups and individuals who don't approve of it. And in the case of Hamas, the Islamist movement, who still are advocating armed resistance to Israel. You can't have these things going on together, a strategy of peaceful negotiation, at the same time as part of your constituency pursuing armed struggle to try to inflict blows on the enemy with whom the other side is negotiating. The next few months are obviously going to be critical. September has been identified as the key month of this year. That's when Salam Fayed, the Palestinian Prime Minister, says that he will be ready to declare the readiness of a Palestinian state. He's uh, spent the last couple of years building institutions um, in order to get those institutions in place in the event of a state. Um, September is also the deadline that President Obama has given for a deal and presumably after September he will be focusing very hard on his own re-election. And September is also the date of the United Nations General Assembly at which the Palestinians may seek to get support for a resolution recognising their own state. Now, what we've seen in the past month or so has been a whole wave of recognitions of a Palestinian state, particularly in South America and Peru just the other day, but also countries like Brazil and Chile and Argentina. Now, it's all very well for other countries to recognise a Palestinian state, but it's only meaningful if it's negotiated here with the Israelis. And I have to say I'm not very optimistic that 2011 is going to see a result on that front. If the Palestinians now demand to have 
proper elections, for a properly elected leadership, all the Palestinians, the ones on the West Bank, in Gaza, East Jerusalem, in the refugee camps, in exile, all these Palestinians should be allowed to take part in an election process and elect a leadership that represents all the Palestinian people. Because the way we are now, the people who've been negotiating and doing these deals really do not represent the bulk of Palestinians. And they uh, speak from uh, a situation of occupation, military occupation that's on the West Bank. They really do not speak for the refugees. They do not speak for the exiles. And increasingly, of course, they don't speak for the people of Gaza. The only way you could get a strong popular mandate for negotiations would be if there was a realignment of Palestinian politics, which would have to involve Fatah, the main Palestinian nationalist movement, sharing power with others. And I think that would have to include Hamas, the uh, Islamist movement, which has opposed these negotiations because it is shut out of them. The difficulty there is squaring the circle of an armed resistance movement which continues to advocate that resistance and wishing to take part in negotiations. The way forward, the way for that to happen, would have to involve a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel and for Hamas somehow to be involved in national unity politics on the Palestinian side to draw up a negotiating position which enjoys wider support. That's the theory of how it should happen. In practice, it looks, as ever, very difficult to achieve. Ian Black. That's it for this week's podcast. The producers in Jericho and Jerusalem, Matt Hayward, and Ian Chambers in London. I'm Matt Wells. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.